This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself of Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a recording of a live video stream with Om C. Parkin kicking off his new online series, Meeting with Teachers, Navigating the Wisdom Path. In this first installment, the mystical positivist hosts converse with Om about his book, The Birth of the Lion, as well as many profound aspects of his teachings on inner stillness. Om C. Parkin is a renowned European wisdom teacher and the founder of the mystery school Ania Lyons and Gut Zaunsdorf, a modern monastery. His books include Intelligence of Awakening, Navigating the Wisdom Path, The Birth of the Lion, and The Digital Age, A Critical View from a Wisdom Perspective. Om embodies in his work the link between Eastern non-duality and Christian mysticism of depth psychology and philosophy beyond the limits of religions and confessions. He often references the tradition of Advaita Vedanta, which has been revived in the 20th century by Sri Ramana Maharshi, Sri Punjaji, the American Gangaji, and others. Om acts in the tradition of these teachers and by being rooted in early Christian teaching. His work in the tradition of silence can be described by three functions, the teacher of wisdom, healer of the soul, seer of the heart. He has been supporting people to find their true nature for more than 30 years and founded the modern satsang movement in Europe. Good evening. On behalf of the OM Foundation Inner Science, a warm welcome to everyone joining us live for our first program of meeting with teachers, navigating the wisdom path. I'm Isabel, and I would like to introduce you to this first event. This evening, here in Germany it is evening, is dedicated to the book of my and our teacher, Omsi Parkin, The Birth of the Lion, Non-Duality as the Way of Life, which was published in English in 2016 by Gateways Books and Tapes in California. Just to give you an impression of the book, this is the cover. I'm very pleased to welcome Ohm as well as Dr. Robert Schmidt and Stuart Goodnick from Sebastopol in California, who will talk to Ohm about this book and who will also moderate tonight. Some words about Ohm. Ohm is a spiritual master of the silent tradition. For almost 30 years, he has been accompanying people on their inner path and guiding them to the core of their true nature. He's philosopher, author, mystic. And as a spiritual teacher, 
he is as uncompromising and radical as he is compassionate and loving. He is also the initiator of the own foundation inner science director of the Mystery School and Alliance School for Inner Work and the founder of the modern monastery Gutzaunsdorf near Hamburg. Robin Stewart are engaged in long-term, intense and intimate mystical spiritual training directed by their teacher Robert Daniel Ennis the founder of Tayo Meditation Center. Today, they collaborate to deepen and expand the development of Tayo practices based upon fourth-way self-observation and co-meditation. They also have a spiritual bookstore, Many Rivers Books and Tea, inspired by their teachers' insistence on conversation among and between all the world's spiritual traditions. And they are the founders of the Mystical Positivist podcast, which consists of long-form conversations with authors, teachers, philosophers, and practitioners from all the world's great spiritual traditions. In autumn 2022, Ohm and a small group of students traveled to the USA, and on this occasion, we also met Rob and Stuart. They not only welcomed us with incredible openness, but also made their home and their bookstore available for Darshan and reading with Ohm, and I'm very happy to see them here again tonight. Before I hand over to them, I would like to say a few words about the evening's proceeding. As announced, if joined via Zoom, we'll have the opportunity to ask questions or share something at the end of the conversation. If you would like to do this, use the, rent, the, the raise hand function in Zoom. You will be called and then please activate your microphone. To be contacted, it would be nice if you use your real name in your Zoom account. Alternatively, it is also possible to post a question in the chat, which will be then addressed to by Robin Stewart. And the people watching on YouTube can also spontaneously decide to take part in Zoom. You can find the instructions for this on YouTube and the text below. Well, I will now hand over to Robin Stewart and I will be happy to join you again at the end for some information. I wish all of us uh, an insightful evening and see you later. Well, thank you so much for that very gracious introduction. We are still remembering quite fondly the uh, wonderful visit that we had uh, by Om and 
his community of students uh, last in autumn of 2022. It was a wonderful time of teaching, a wonderful time of conversation, and also laughter. So we're uh, grateful to see our friends again and to begin this conversation. So we've been asked to uh, begin because the focus of this conversation is um, the book, uh, The Birth of the Lion, to read uh, a parable that is in the German edition. Right. Yeah, so this is a, this is a parable from which the, the title, The Birth of the Lion, um, comes from. Ironically, it didn't appear in the English edition, which is uh, uh, interesting in its own right. But uh, we'll start with this, because I think it uh, speaks to a nature of what we're going to be getting into today. So the parable goes like this. Once a lioness attacked a flock of sheep, the lioness was pregnant, and during the attack, she lost her cub and died. The young lion cub survived, however, and grew up in the flock of sheep. The sheep grazed in the meadow, and the young lion learned to follow their example. When they bleated, the young lion tried to imitate them. Over the course of time, he grew to be an adult lion. One day, another lion appeared. To this lion's amazement, he caught sight of the young lion in the flock that was behaving like a sheep. He chased it, and when he grabbed the sheep lion by the neck, it started bleating fearfully like a sheep. Unimpressed, he dragged the lion to the nearby lake. He showed him the reflection of two lions on the surface of the water and said, Look, you are as much a lion as I am. Now take this piece of meat. He tried to force the meat into his jaws, but the sheep lion refused. He bleated desperately, still claiming to be a sheep. But then he tasted the blood, and his sleeping instincts were awakened. He started to devour the meat. The old lion said, Do you understand now that you and I are the same? Come with me into the woods. In this way, the teacher causes the student to recognize his or her true self. And this is a quote from uh, Ramakrishna. So with that, we, it's great to see uh, you, Om, again, and very happy to uh, be part of this conversation. So that story is a great description of the nature of one one aspect or one aspect of the nature of the the teaching function and the the function of the teacher to awaken the student to something about their true nature and i was reminded when i read that parable of another slightly different way of looking at the problem and this was this comes from the chinese zen tradition and this uh, story is about the um, poetry contest that the fifth patriarch in the Zen tradition had initiated in order to determine who is going to become the sixth patriarch. So there were a number of very accomplished monks in this uh, uh, competition, and one named Shen Shu wrote a verse that said, The body is the Bodhi tree. The mind is like a bright mirror's stand. At all times, we must strive to polish it, and we must not let dust collect. And I think most of the monks are very impressed, but the fifth patriarch wasn't quite 
satisfied with this, but he did think that it was close enough that he offered uh, Shen Shu the opportunity to submit another verse to uh, clarify the matter. In the ensuing couple of days, however, um, a uneducated uh, lay practitioner, Huineng, was in the uh, uh, monastery and he heard some of the young monks chanting Shen Shu's verse because they were so enamored with it. And so he was asked by someone to write down a verse, what his response was to this. And he wrote down, Bodhi originally has no tree. The mirror has no stand. The Buddha nature is always clear and pure. Where is there room for dust? This initiated quite a controversy and uh, lots of conflict, but ultimately out of this, Huineng became the fifth or the sixth Zen patriarch. And um, the reason I bring this up is that in the parable of the lion, we have a sense of a rightness and an appropriateness and a true nature being displayed and communicated by the teacher. In the story of uh, Shen Chu's verse and Huineng, we have a sto- an idea or a depiction of practice as somehow clearing away obstacles and clearing away dust. And yet what Huineng uh, pointed to was that there is no dust, that Buddha nature is always clear and pure. And the reason I bring this up is that I was struck in reading The Birth of the Lion, particularly in um, your story of the awakening process that you had, that at some point, there's this paradox that we have to somehow do work on ourselves, and yet the nature of the work is illusory, that the obstacles are part of the oneself, and that even the context of doing work on ourselves sets up a subtle opposition in the mind that keeps us in separation. And so what you describe is this radical release or this radical freedom in which one can practice and yet not practice at the same time. So perhaps that's a place we can start the conversation as we get into more practical matters of the challenges that students face. Hmm. What is what is your question? <laughs> it was a long long introduction. It's a, it's a it's a, the question is more more an invitation to speak about the paradox of practice that mm. we engage in this work to attain a kind of freedom, and yet the more we engage, the further away the freedom is. <clears throat> Well, there is always a highest point of view. And there are some scriptures, texts, which represent the highest point of view in the wisdom teachings. Um, The highest point of view is always absolutely true. Um, But referring it to the reality a person lives in, we have to um, include uh, relative points of view um, which are dedicated to the seeming reality of this person. 
Um, another metaphor, you know, teachers use is is simply the sun. So, in case we had the lion, we had the the purity of um, no dust, and if we use the metaphor of the sun, we would say that the sun is always shining. So there is no moment when the sun is not shining, neither at night, it's just um, <clears throat> the night side of the sun, nor when it's overcast. So it depends on the perspective and the limited perspective of a person, right, that cannot see, realize in that very moment that the sun is shining. <clears throat> it does not matter in that moment uh, whether the clouds are real or not. Because if they are part of the reality of this person in that moment, in this very moment, they have to be um, <clears throat> put to self-inquiry. Right? So the, the power of discrimination has to be used. So it does not serve this person to accept the rational concept that the clouds are not real. I have seen this happening, you know, that many people uh, have been moving to India, especially this time 20, 30 years ago, and had contact with Advaita teachers. And <clears throat> they came back with the idea that they have understood Advaita, what I called the concept of non-concepts, making a concept of non-concepts, which is possible, you know? So this is not, <clears throat> not the... the work of discrimination that has to be used in inner science. In inner science, the investigation has to happen in an empty mind. So the mind does not know whether it's true, is it true or is it not true? Is it real or is it not real? Okay, even if masters or scriptures have presented it's not real, um, I cannot use this sublime concept from wisdom teachings. I cannot use it. If I use it, uh, this is not inner science. Because inner mm. science needs an absolutely empty mind and the mind of not knowing, the beginner's mind. So uh, related to that, one of the things that uh, struck me um, in, in uh, The Birth of the Lion as I was reviewing it uh, for this conversation was something that you wrote um, for, for Americans with the English edition or other English speakers 
on page 179, you're asked the question, what is truth? And your response uh, is, basically, I can only answer that question by describing what truth is not. Truth is nothing you can seize by thought, as you have tried until now. Truth is nothing you can perceive by the five senses or supernatural senses or any sense at all. Truth is not an object. So if you cannot seize truth, neither by the senses nor by thought, what remains? And when I read that, I was reminded of practices uh, like uh, neti neti in the Indian, uh, general Indian tradition. Not that, not that. In this work of uh, self-inquiry that you just mentioned, um, the uh, suggestion is to look at aspects and manifestations and decide if that is the truth about who you are or what you are or what is all. And uh, furthermore, it also reminded me of uh, the, description, the, the discussion of the names and descriptions of God by uh, Dionysus the Areopagite, the, uh, the Christian mystic uh, from the early centuries, as well as uh, the Tao, the Taoist, the statement in um, the Tao Te Ching, um, the, tr the uh, Tao that can, can be expressed by words is not the Tao. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm, I immediately was thinking about these, these parallels and uh, these relationships. And I'm wondering if you have any comment uh, on that linkage that, that uh, arose for me. This is why I uh, keep repeating that the highest approach is a negative approach. Negative theology is, is a term that, that leads back to this church father that you just mentioned. And um, you see, the question, what is truth, could be replaced by the question, who is God? So finding out who is God uh, <clears throat> How is it possible to find out who is God? The, when I say the highest path is negative, it means that there's also a positive path, right? Positive means that someone believes to find God, truth, or, or what is real by focusing on certain let's say, virtues. Um, maybe some very sublime phenomena, which is definitely on the other side of violence or whatever we could say of negative, what is definitely negative. So, in the, in the negative approach, there is the wisdom included that we cannot see God through selecting 
any kind of phenomena. Um, God is what remains. Whenever everything with power of discrimination has been excluded, so this is not God and this is not God either and this, this cannot be God because it's transitory and, and so on. So neti neti um, is definitely the highest path. So we use this approach not only concerning the absolute but also relating to the I, you know, the I. So is this the true I? <laughs> what is the true I, you see? When somebody asks me, how can I find out who I am, then I would respond in the same way, saying that, well, find out, use the power of discrimination, who you're not. See? And there are some, some practical hints that can be used. Uh, one of them is, is that I, I teach people to to go to the root of things. And if, if they find a root, if you, f if you can find a root of something in the deepest depth of yourself, if it is rooted, then we could say it comes from, from within, it comes from, it, it relates to the true I, it comes from, we could also say, from the soul. So what people call the I is something that is not rooted inside but why can they not realize this they cannot realize because the attention is not uh, in the same depth where you could discriminate is there a root or is there not you see the, the, the attention of the people is is much too much on the surface so self-inquiry leads uh, in a vertical direction whereas as you know the ordinary mind is, is, is uh, inclined to, to think and to use attention in a horizontal way. So yes, the highest path is, is negative. God has no certain ways of being. And by looking at what can be seen with the physical eyes, even with mental eyes, it is not possible to find God. Thank you. So, I'd like to turn some questions to the what you write so lucidly about both in the birth of the lion and also the intelligence of awakening, which is the subtle operation of this thing mind. And one of the distinctions that you draw that I've found very powerful uh, is this distinction between what we might call inner silence. And I think you said to us uh, when you visited us in uh, the fall of 22 that you can be silent and not still, and you can be still but not silent. Mm. And so there's inner silence, there's intentional emptiness, which is something that you describe as a kind of a function of the mind, That, and then there's true stillness. 
I'm wondering if you could speak about those respective states. Well, intentional emptiness is a function of the mind. I have watched intentional emptiness in some practitioners who were practicing practicing, um, Zen meditation. Actually, I think in in one of my books, I don't know whether it's The Birth of the Lion or I I think it's even in The Birth of the Lion, I'm describing a situation where I met uh, a meditation teacher who uh, practiced the Soham meditation. And he was uh, in touch with high lamas in, in, in Tibet. And the situation was the following, that I was wondering, I was irritated that in certain situations we were sitting together, it was a confrontive, conf- confronting situation. It was not an harmonious situation. And in that moment, suddenly, he closed his eyes and started with Soham meditation. And I was kind of irritated, you know, I thought, I, but at that time I just couldn't understand what was going on. Much later, I realized what was happening, that the mind was using intentional emptiness to um, get out of the unpleasant, confrontative situation, you know? Um, Instead of looking into the eyes and making something very clear, maybe this would have caused the uprising of anger. So to avoid this, he used meditation, you know? So this was, for me, this was quite a um, insightful situation. And I have, uh, in many years later, I've, I've often seen people who have been believing that this was meditation, but it turned out that they were the mind was using meditation to fade out something that was unpleasant in life. For example, fear of death. I I remember talking to to one of my disciples years ago. I was watching her uh, meditating every day and being on her own, and one day I said, what actually is your atten- intention to meditate? You see, and it turned out that there was, that this intentional emptiness was part of a mind structure of self-avoidance. So this is maybe not the full answer, but it's, it's a hint, Right. Yeah, so it, it's, a, it's a very clear uh, response. And uh, just going further with that, it's interesting because what you describe as thinking mind is certainly what 
most people, particularly people not engaged in a spiritual path, use to avoid looking deeper at something uh, more rooted in themselves, as you put it. But it's an interesting and sort of a little bit shocking to say, well, then there's this intentional emptiness. If I'm a good spiritual practitioner and meditate, then I can I can do the same thing. Mind is very clever. It can use uh, silence as a way to um, actually avoid looking at things. And so this is, a again, another kind of paradox because to get beyond thinking mind, which, as I understand you to, to mean, would be to get to a place where there can be discrimination and emptiness, one has to be able to not engage in thought, but that's not the same thing as pushing thought away. Would you, is that, am I understanding you correctly there? Well, you see, one of the chapters in The Birth of the Lion is called The Art of Non-Doing. So non-doing is, is not a concept that the thinking mind can acquire. It's not possible for the mind to learn the practice of non-doing. The mind is, is dedicated to, to doing in any, any way, you know. The mind cannot understand non-doing, because non-doing is what remains when every attempt to do or not to do, every personal attempt comes to an end. Non-doing is what remains, um, the thinking mind can only get out of the way. By the way, it's, it's, it's very important to make the distinction between the thinking mind and the working mind. Maybe we could also... Yeah, put Please. Put a few words on that. Um, look, I, I have—I don't have the American version of the book, uh, so it's, it's it's on a different page. Can can you see that actually? Yeah, we can yeah. see the. Yeah, I can see the Alden, but uh, yeah. I've never. It does. It, it doesn't matter. You you can just listen to my my quote. Um, okay. The page is not the same. Okay. Hmm. <clears throat> This is, this is a quote about the distinction between the thinking mind and the working mind. Ramesh Palsekar distinguishes the working mind from the thinking mind. The working mind is the self in action. It is exclusively occupied with whatever work needs to be done. The working mind is the instrument of the self so that whatever job is created, maintained and destroyed is divine work. This working mind is not a personal identification 
It does not create suffering. The thinking mind, however, is the deception that does create suffering. Whenever something is planned, it can at any moment take a different turn from what was originally planned. The working mind is like a drop of water in the flow. The moment the flow is diverted, the water is also diverted. The moment something is planned and a certain direction is set, it can change completely in any given moment, for it is not known how things will change. Things don't run positively in every moment according to your own idea of positive. In duality, it is not possible for everything to run in a positive way. This, too, is a hypocritical spiritual concept that as long as there is positive thinking, things will run positively as well. But this is not true. Things will always run both positively and negatively. What does negative mean anyway? It means nothing except that things that have been born must die. The working mind works with the illusion of time without living in time. The only thing the working mind is occupied with is whatever has to be done in this moment and it will accomplish this impeccably. Actions that are destined to be finished are simply finished. Actions that are not destined to be finished are not finished. Everything happens in consciousness in total clarity. There is no avoidance of action, no avoidance of phenomena, no turning towards phenomena, and no turning away from phenomena. Yet, and this is a paradox that cannot be understood by the mind, battles can still arise because the falsity of the mind, when it is encountered, is not accepted. Well, it turns out to be a long um, quote. When I talk about the mind, or even when the wisdom teachings use the term mind as an enemy, we're always talking about the thinking mind. But we have to understand that the thinking mind, the working mind, we're using the same term. And we're having, when we, with the term mind, um, I would say that our language is at a limit. Okay? We cannot really... Uh, the language does not have the true capacity any longer to, to really um, point to what mind means. But at first, we have to distinguish between two entities. Uh, I use the term of a separate entity, meaning mind. Um, an entity which has created a 
individual existence. Um, individual actually means undivided, so this term is also uh, actually leads to the to wrong direction. But undivided in the, in, the, in the sense of being separate, it's true. Otherwise, it's completely divided. <laughs> you know. So, this thinking mind, or the entity of the thinking mind, has to die. The working mind will remain. We're using the same word. It's not the same entity. I called it the self in action. I'm very thankful to Ramesh Palsikar to He had a very clear teaching about, you know, the distinction between thinking mind and working mind. And working mind is, is a term that, that goes back to Ramesh Palsikar. Hmm. It's interesting for us in the uh, Fourth Way tradition, the language that's used, and our own teacher used the language for this thinking mind. The term he used was the android, because it's like this uh, simulacrum of a human being. Uh, I think other traditional sources in the Fourth Way will speak about false personality. But the key sense is that when false personality is the center of gravity or the active principle in one's functioning, then this divided sort of life and separation is what we experience. But when what the fourth way calls the essence or something beyond this becomes the positive, then it can imbue or it can move through the mind and organize the mind. And what comes forth is something that's inspired and not something that is um, a product of blind associations. So, so I, I, this, and it's interesting because I went reading things like the intelligence of awakening, there's a great deal of difficult conceptual material that one can go through, but it's not coming from a place of um, uh, association or it's not coming from the realm of thinking mind. It's, it's, it's coming from a different realm and there's a quality that's different in work products like that than what we see often in popular literature or popular uh, uh, explanations of the world around us. So this, this mind, the, the working mind, feels to be like a, not something so much that we can turn on or off, but it's, it's more, as you said, to cease the relentless functioning of the thinking mind such that the working mind can awaken and become actionable or become become the nature of our experience is that well the 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 working mind is even in a very simple person uh is not completely inactive you know so in in some moments it takes over without this person being aware of what is happening, you know? So, because an ordinary person uh, is living in a bubble created by the thinking mind, and yet, in moments, uh, this person 
is without any effort, uh, just by, let's call it coincidence. Um, suddenly, uh, in a different mode of functioning, and the working mind has been taking over. Um, yes, the fourth way uses the distinction between the personality and uh, the and the essence. Almas uses it as, I mean, all inner teachers have, they might have different terms, but we have to understand that this is one of the pillars of, of the inner teachings, the distinction between two entities and two systems in the inner human being. See, this, this distinction in, in most, in, in all the other systems, like religions, I mean, the, the external religions, does not happen. There, there they're talking about the human being and God. You know, but who is the human being? The human being does not exist. You know, um, also in 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 many public discussions of psychology and philosophy and sociology, they're always talking about the human being, but the human being does not exist. You know, it's just absolutely inexistent. We have to talk about two human beings. If you, if you want, you know. Uh, whereas the one is not a human being. Um, it is a machine. And the machine is also a term that, as you know, the fourth way uses. It's a very unpleasant term. It's not very nice to uh, call a human being a machine. But it's, 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 it's true. Um, and... The relation between these two entities can be understood like the one is a simulation of the core. It is not completely different. It's a simulation. You see? So this leads us to the concepts that a human being more than 99% of human beings are living in a, in a kind of simulation of themselves. So this is also, let me say this at the end of, of this, explaining this concept, this is how um, the inner teachings understand uh, the, the good and the evil in a completely different way uh, as the ordinary people or the religions. What we call evil is a kind of simulation of the good. It is not the opposite in a horizontal uh, understanding, how the thinking mind understands, ah, on the one side there is good, on the other side there is evil. This is not how, it's, how it really works. Thank you. Um, you, you remind me in, this, in your answer uh, that uh, throughout much of the um, uh, birth of a lion, uh, you are responding to questions where people are attempting to find, I would say, to fine-tune to um, make 
better, supposedly, um, experience through manipulation by what you're calling the thinking mind. And there's a there's a quote. Um, once again, you don't have the page, but uh, but I do in 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 the English edition uh, on page two twenty seven. You you write. Um, um, being makes decisions on its own. And by being here, I, I would assume you agree that you're pointing to this working mind uh, capacity to, to a certain extent. Uh, because uh, my own teacher used to say that there's something senior to the um, before uh, the arising of the thinking mind. So babies don't have a thinking mind, but they make decisions about um, how they respond to their experience. And uh, so I'll continue with this quote. Being makes decisions on its own. You don't make the decisions. The one who believes itself to be making decisions is like the commentator of a football game who believes himself to be one of the players the truth is the game doesn't need him. His presence is completely insignificant to the game, the game of life or Leela. You live in the idea that you are a, quote, someone, unquote, who makes decisions. So um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious to, you know, your use of the word or the translator's use of the word being here Um is that uh, am I am I understanding correctly this distinction um, between the function of being that is senior to the arising of the thinking mind, and thus that's where the simulation comes in when decision when the thinking mind makes decision it's trying to emulate or uh, substitute. Um, the function of being or the working mind. What does senior senior in this sense actually mean? It means above. prior to or Prior above. to, right? Prior to, yes. That's what I thought. Um, well, I, I wouldn't say that a baby makes decisions, even the baby doesn't even have a working mind, you know. Um, <laughs> um The working mind is still a limited concept that uh, kind of pretends as if there were a personal entity making decisions. So when I'm talking about being making decisions, it relates to the truth that there is not even a... Um, personal entity called um, the truthful self or something, you know, that makes the decisions. I mean, decisions are just being done. Things are just happening. Um, even if we take into consideration that there is an individual system, the <clears throat> body-mind uh, system. Then this individual 
system, again, is only um, receiving and transmitting uh, impulses that are not coming from this separate entity. So there is a happening, um, there is a dynamic, and in some moment there is nothing happening at all. Um, and the source, the source of whatever is happening is not individual. So the working mind, you know, in a sense, is just translating. We could call the working mind a translator of, of impulses that, that do not um, arrive from a personal entity, not even a personal core. See, some people think that, I mean, what is the difference between the soul and the self? We know this difference in the, in the Indian philosophy between the Atman and the Brahman. And finally, the teachers point to the truth that Atman and Brahman are the same. There cannot be a distinction. So, um, finally, everything is Brahman. Um, there is no such thing as a personal core of, of action. The working mind is just a translator of impulses. Okay. I get, I get it. And um, um, therefore, um, when, peop when, as I was describing, so many of the questions uh, in, in this book, and in, of course, many other spiritual books, is that people are confused about what to do. And, and, and I think they're partly confused because they're not used to making the distinction that, you, that you've just made. So where does the impulse come from, as you're, as you're, you're discussing, both in this conversation and the birth of the and And how, how, this thing, how these impulses are translated um, then becomes the, um, the immediate question for people. Well, it, it is um, a temporary, important um, instruction for a person of the inner path to um, take responsibility for uh, the true action, uh, the true impulse, and um, <clears throat> of course, this instruction um, pretends as if there were a, a personal uh, entity making a decision, you know. But we have to go through this um, threshold. Um, this is called, also called responsibility. 
responsibility is, is a personal concept. Uh, but it is an important concept uh, for a person in a, in a childish position having to grow up. Uh, growing up and the, the adult state of, of a human being usually is what I call the, the mother soil. Is that the true term? Mother soil? Uh, of, of, you know, for the impersonal of, for the reception of the impersonal teachings as Advaita is. So, I mean, Advaita, you know, is d depending on what, what soil the teaching is being received, a, a childish, uh, immature person, uh, ha not, not in a, in a grown-up state, uh, who has not taken this threshold of what I call the threshold of responsibility, um, is not able to understand what what the impersonal teachings teach that what is beyond personal responsibility beyond personal action or non-action you see this is the truth of whatever is and yet we have to take responsibility i mean we cannot let go of responsibility in an advaita sense without ever having taken responsibility in a personal sense, you see. Another paradox. <laughs> yes. Well, one, one um, question that comes up is uh, a larger question, and, and that, that's, does our individuated consciousness, which you've been discussing, Describing ultimately is something of an illusion because we give this illusion of agency. We have this illusion of agency, and yet there's something beyond us that's the true agent. Does this have meaning? I mean, is there a meaning to our lives as individuals? Is there a meaning to our suffering? Even I don't know if that if the question is clear, but it's 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 a. a Often when we talk in terms of teachings, you know, the unique individual experience or this individual lens of consciousness, this, this way of being or this reflection of the of true being is, is, a, is a creation. It arises in the uh, game. It's a product of Leela. Uh, does it have meaning in and of itself? Are you simply asking, what is the meaning of life? That's <laughs> a good response. <laughs> 42. <laughs> Does life have meaning? Well, meaning... Mm, meaning is the concept of the mind. So, a, a searcher of the inner, in the inner path is uh, close to what I call the true meaning of an individual person, of the incarnation in this life. And the only meaning that I would pronounce is the meaning to wake up from a dream. 
This is not the final teaching. It's a temporary teaching. Um, it's the meaning of the searcher. Once the search is over, in a sense also the meaning is over. But being beyond meaning does not mean, mean being in meaninglessness. So the truth is, it's neither meaning nor is it meaningless. It's neither meaningful nor is it meaningless. It's just simply what is. But the personal meaning is a transitory concept that will be finally diminished. Thank you. So, um, a moment ago, we were we were speaking, uh, or you were you in particular were speaking about, and have been speaking throughout, and in the book throughout, uh, the point that um, that separation is an illusion, essentially, and yeah, there's a uh, there's a there's a sentence that I particularly liked. Um, in in the book, which is except in thought, no separation can be seen anywhere. Except in thought, no separation can be seen anywhere. I think it's a very elegant and succinct um, expression of how how we can find. Um, Some uh, purchase on the on the um, on what on the on how that arises, perhaps meaningfully, <laughs> but but um, uh, how separation arises. How how we how we experience the absence of separation, and um, so. Um, if we if we're trying to use what you call the I thoughts in in this book, um, it's it doesn't work to find and experience that clarity of not being separate, not experiencing separation. In other words, experiencing what is bigger than what my I thoughts tell me I am. So, um, uh, and I think, uh, let me see if I can find, find a sentence here. Um, in, the, in a moment of stillness, beyond thought, you can have the fundamental experience of no separation. That takes us back to this earlier question about stillness. And you talked about it then, earlier in our conversation um, from one one side of things. Perhaps you can, uh, I, I invite you to talk more about um, this moment of stillness beyond thought. Well, you began with the concept of, situa- of, of separation. Maybe, maybe we 
lose a few words on that bef before we get to the moment of stillness. Um, an ordinary person does not even have consciousness about separation. I mean, you, you go to an ordinary American, in this, ask him in the street, or in the gym, or, you know, whatever. Um, uh, are you, do you have a feeling of separation, of being separate? And either he will not understand you, or will deny. So, the... Uh, Separation, the moment of conscious separation, is what I call conscious suffering. It's a very important step on the inner path. When I have arrived at this moment of conscious suffering, it means that there is a clarity about the reality of separation And self-inquiry can allow me to move more and more to the core of where separation is happening. Yes, separation is a creation of the I-thought. It is not a creation of the physical body. It is not even a creation of emotions. It is a creation of the I-thought. So then the attention moves to the center. And self-observation can start. In my autobiography in this book, you will find that uh, I'm describing uh, a phase where um, this, the observer was able to observe I-thoughts, and yet I, I'm describing this state as a state of separation because it was, I was not able to um, cut through this separation between the observer and the I-thought. So the process uh, was not at an end. And the observer, of course, what, what, what we call the observer uh, might also be an I-thought. You see, a covered I-thought, covering up as pretending to be the observer. But it could be that the, an I-thought is observing an I-thought. And so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult situation, you know. <laughs> um, These are really the, the fine instruments of, of self-inquiry at the core of separation. You see, it has nothing to do with behavior. It has nothing to do with anything outside. It has nothing to do with the body. It has nothing to do with emotions. Only the core, being at the core of the I-thought. So very few people... Um, are really there. You know, even people of the spiritual path are completely 
there at this source. You know, it, it seems difficult. It could also be easy. However, this is the source of separation, a very clear um, teaching of the Advaita teachings, especially from Ramana Maharshi. I mean, hardly any uh, teacher has... put the concentration of the seeker to this very clear point. I mean, I have never read such a clarity, radicalness. This is where separation starts. Of course, stillness, you know, the moment of stillness. Stillness is the moment when separation has ended. Every other kind of stillness is relative, silence. Um, so, an ordinary person cannot be still. And if the mind intends to be still, you know what is happening, then we have the same phenomena as intentional emptiness. You see, so you can intend to be quiet, and you can also intend to be silent but you cannot intend to be still. Stillness is what remains when doing and not non-doing has come to an end. Stillness is simply what remains. And yet, I mean, yet we can be dedicated to stillness. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that the person cannot be dedicated to stillness. I mean, monks, monks living in monasteries and nuns for ages and ages, everybody b being on the ascetic way was finally dedicated to, to, to find stillness through contemplation. And maybe they found stillness in moments during the prayer, during a very sublime moment in the temple. And then it turned out that this stillness was, was not everlasting because there was still, you know, a, a, some phenomena called mind getting in, in, in the way. So, I, I think that most people describe the following um, experience. It's not like Ramana Maharshi, you know. Uh, this one absolute moment uh, which is devastating everything. I mean, it's a moment of complete and total death. So most people don't experience this. This is very rare. Most people um, observe a kind of process in which stillness is being touched. And then what we call the entity of mind comes in again, and then stillness is touched again. So maybe the moments of stillness, they, they repeatedly happen, and they get extended 
And there is something called the final stillness, where, which even does not exclude an I thought. Because this is what some people also think, you see, that stillness means that there will be no more thought. No, there are not 60,000 thoughts any longer, which is the, the average, maybe the average thought of an average person. You know, not 60,000 a day, but maybe there are only like a few hundred a day. But there are thoughts, you know, but the working mind also needs thoughts. There is a final stillness which is untouched by everything, working or not working, sleeping at night, day consciousness, body in action or not in action, nothing touches final stillness. Thank Final you. stillness is the knowledge of God. It's the knowledge of self. Well, thank, thank you. I think uh, 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 we understand that this is now the time for audience questions. <laughs> so um, we, I, we need to hand, hand hand over control, as it were. Or we can we can. Uh... Right. Moderate. We just need people to uh, raise their hands in Zoom to uh, ask a question. And okay, you know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. There are no questions right now. We can we can continue on, but uh, if you do have questions, do the the hand raise in um, in, oh, in oh, Zoom, or you could use the chat. Yeah, function. or you or use the chat function, and we'll take them as they uh, come up or direct them. Uh. Yeah, it's it's no problem if there are no questions. But if somebody does have a question. Uh, should ask the question now because, um, you know, our time is limited to one and a half hours. Right. Okay. So how was all our conversation to now? I mean... <laughs> well, we got to a nice place. <laughs> <laughs> we got to a good place, right? That's right. Mm. Which is, uh, um, of course, agreeable. And, and I hope of benefit to those listening yeah. to the conversation. Well, uh, I think one question I have that relates in part to the process that, um, you know, there are metaphors of um, uh, killing the thinking mind or slaying the ego and as a, a necessary step in this process. Uh, in some traditions, and I think this comes up somewhat in the um, fourth way that the that there's the idea of uh, digesting in, in other words it's it's like as we are present 
to I thoughts and release them as we're present to feeling states and identity states and we can be present to them and ultimately hold them in awareness such that they can evolve or dissolve. It's like a process of metabolizing and in a way what is part of false personality or thinking mind becomes digested and becomes available then to working mind. Is that a, does that um, describe or does that capture uh, this process that you've been describing? <clears throat> there are different um, metaphors used by different spiritual traditions and you you were just describing another one digestion um, is also a process of transformation so <clears throat> if someone asks me is it possible to find liberation without having to die The answer is no. You see, so it doesn't matter what terms we use. You can call it digestion. Or you, <laughs> it's a nice term. Or you could also call it transformation. There are some terms that, that seem less threatening to the mind and others seem more threatening. However, it's not what the mind thinks it is anyway. But, yes, some... Traditions, maybe also the Zen tradition has more mm, powerful, radical terms, martial terms. Can you can you say that? Martial from martial arts, yes. right? Um, so it doesn't matter how how we put it. There 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 is. A dying process. So, um, this is, I mean, the, the metaphor of the Christian teaching is very clear, isn't it? It's the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. This is a very clear esoteric teaching. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely clear and there is nothing to be added to that. Um, it also implies that there is no... First it says that there is no resurrection without crucifixion, but it also says that there is no crucifixion without resurrection, you see? So wherever, well, from what perspective you look at it, it's, 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 this is the transformation process. That's why I said in a very simple way, also in this book, uh, we have to leave the world. But leaving the world... Um, means that there will be some coming back to the world. 
not the same entity, but something is coming back to the world, um, returning to the world. We have a, a question from uh, Averni that says, this paradox of the I brings me a concept once heard from a spiritual teacher, quote, pay more attention to the, the I that stands in your way than the I that pretends to develop itself. Well, the striving concept of the I could be part of the obstacle. It's, as you know, also it's a typically American concept. <laughs> uh, a typically American uh, disguise of an obstacle. Um, the striving I could be part of the obstacle. And calling it self, you know, there are there are terms I, 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 I am, I'm, I don't know what, whether this English term is also the same, but self, here you find many terms like in, in the internet, you know, self-optimization, self-optimizing, what do you call it? Self-optimization. Self-optimization, you know, they call it, you know. This is a typical concept of the striving path. Um, the limitation of the self, the limitative aspect is not available to the self-optimizing concept of the I. The limitative shadow is not available to this person. That's pretty clear. And yet, you know, I mean, there is a... We cannot deny that there is a, cons that there is a process of, of um, unfoldment. We can understand that, that the soul, what we call the soul, um, is also like, maybe like, you know, like a flower that has been, that needs to open the leaves. Like the lotus, which is being touched by sun, is opening. You see? So this we could call unfoldment. This is a natural process. And has nothing to do with the simulation of the eye called self-optimization. There's a, a popular term for that in the West Coast these days called hacking yourself. From the uh, computer metaphor of hacking, so it's it's, it's the same same process, and yes, a very American uh, impulse. We're just uh, making a film. You know, there is a filmmaker here. Uh, I'm just giving this interview two days ago. This it's a film about trans-human, um, um, the trans-human concept. Is that the right term in English? I think so. That, that's one of them, sure. Yes, yes. Um, 
the idea of you know the, the, this concept of self optimization using technical means to get apparently beyond the limitations of the human being a very naive a very completely naive concept which is taking more and more power uh, in the digital age yeah so you said something a few moments ago that uh, I wanted to go back to that's was a very powerful concept, and that's this idea of conscious suffering. So this appears in the fourth way tradition, but your um, your comment that conscious suffering is the clarity of the reality of separation is a very interesting one because it it seems to be, from what I understand you saying, that our ability to be present to the suffering that is inherent in a separation, however, whether it's an I thought or a construct, but to be present to that and to hold that is very uncomfortable because every habit we have of thinking mind is to push that away, to either deny it, to cover it, as you said, with intentional emptiness, to think a series of thoughts, to wrap it in a buffer, but just to be able to hold it in attention and allow that to be and to be present with it is is an act, act of suffering. And yet this is conscious suffering. And it seems to me that, that I'm understanding you to say that this is a key to this transformation. It is a key for the transformation of any kind of separation. Um, if I use old Christian terms, then I would say that um, we can only find paradise in hell. <laughs> so if we're looking for paradise, we can only find it in hell. If there is a movement away from hell towards an idealistic sense of being called paradise, it's, it's simply an illusion. Why can we only find it in hell? Because transformation and we're going, coming back to the term of conscious suffering, transformation can only happen in hell. It cannot happen outside of hell. This is actually the, the, the true meaning of hell. And even, you see, when we, when we have pictures from hell coming from the Middle Ages, very often hell is being mm, shown as in touch with the element of fire. It's always with fire. It's a place of fire. You know? Sometimes, of course, it's also a place of death and, and it, it, of darkness. But we, we find very often these images of fire. 
And fire, of course, is, is just the, a metaphor for inner transformation. So this is the place where transformation happens. It's not an invitation to make yourself comfortable in hell. Like, like, you know, the Catholic tradition has been teaching. But this is not the, pros, the problem of modern people. You know, modern people uh, don't have the same tendencies any longer. They are hedonists. And they try to make themselves comfortable in all places, but never in hell. So we're not dealing with the same tendencies any longer. But the teaching is still the same. Find paradise in hell. There, there's a wonderful uh, story that my teacher loved to tell about someone who <clears throat> was cast into hell. And there are layers of hell in this story. So down and down and down and down and down and down to the very bottom of hell and then down into the sewers of hell. And at the bottommost sewer of hell, you open that door and enter into heaven. And um, it's a, you know, it's not a perfect reflection of what you were just saying, but it gives the flavor, it seems to me. No, it does give, definitely does give the flavor. Um, my instruction is, 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 is the following. At first, we have to state that people, the, the, the obstacle is not that people live in hell. You see, they, of course, everybody lives in, my, in his own kind of hell, which can also have the flavor of paradise in the, in the hedonistic person. You know, it's, it's paradise. Um, it, it, it's, it, it needs a mature mind to realize what is actually hell, because hell can look like paradise, you know. Um, <clears throat> but um, actually, I, I lost... What did I want to say? <laughs> Um, <clears throat> well, Miriam, Miriam adds a comment that we are living in per perfect conditions at the moment. It seems to it seems to experience hell and within what we are looking for. We are living in perfect conditions at the moment. It seems to experience hell and within what we are looking for. So maybe that means the perfect conditions is to experience uh, the hell within what we're looking for. I'm, and it's not, not completely clear. Okay, I, 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 uh, I don't know what I was wanting to talk about anymore. You have to ask a, a new question. Maybe I will remember in, in a moment, but I can't remember what I wanted to tell. Well, I want to be mindful of time. We're at uh, an hour and a half. We can certainly continue on if uh, we have the time. 
Um, but that's up to you guys on your end. I think we have reached... Um, it was a very profound conversation, and um, I'm actually quite happy with our dialogue. Good. I, I, Me too. I mean... I would say it's complete. We've gone from heaven to hell and back again. So. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 right. That's right. <laughs> um, but you see, the, the concept of hell, it's it 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 gives a certain flavor coming from the old ages, and modern hedonists uh, feel alienated from this flavor. Mm. And this has to do with the well-beingness and the comfort of materialistic life. Yeah. Um, materialistic life uh, is an increase of tamas. Mm a very high increase of tamas, tamasic mind, uh, finds happiness in this well-being of materialistic life and loses conscious suffering. In other words, you see in, in the Middle Ages, uh, We cannot say that more people were near conscious suffering, but definitely more people were nearer to suffering, the concept of suffering in itself. Conscious suffering and suffering is not the same. Um, conscious suffering is being at the core of suffering. Inconscious suffering does not only mean that The, the suffering is not conscious, it means also that the attention of this person is not at the core of where suffering is originated. Maybe, you know, the body has all kinds of ailments, uh, maybe the circumstances of life are responsible for suffering, and there are so many different layers where people uh, find the origins of suffering um, very, very few people are at the source of suffering uh, where consciousness and the I-thought meet. Got it. Well, that's very clear. We can, we can have, we can, maybe, you know... Um, <clears throat> We can have a, a meeting on, on, on Zoom or on Skype another day just shortly to hear how this had, has developed today. Actually, I'm, I'm leaving for India soon. Uh, but maybe, you know, in, in March or so, we could have a short meeting. That would be great. I would love that. <laughs> we, we really appreciate the conversation today. We, uh, yeah, I think it was... Uh, I, I certainly had the sense that uh, we, we uh, ranged widely and deeply as well. And that's, that's an achievement. 
Thank you, and I see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that evening. I'm sad. The word profound evening. And thank you for being there. Thank you, Om, for sharing your wisdom and for your presence. And thank you, Rob and Stuart, for engaging so very much in that conversation with Om. I would now like to say um, some few words about the Ohm Foundation Inner Science. A part of the Foundation's work is to facilitate encounters and networking with spiritual teachers and students of different paths. And with meeting with teachers, we want to create an international and easily accessible opportunity for such an encounter and for exchange. And the participation on this program is free of charge, but if you would like to support the work of the Foundation, we would be very grateful for a donation. More information on how to donate you can find on YouTube or on our website. The next meeting with teachers will take place at the end of April or beginning of May, it's not quite sure yet. The exact date and further details you also can find on YouTube and on our website. This today's conversation will remain on YouTube. So you can watch it again if you want to and you can, can recommend it to other people. And at the very end, a little advertising. If you would like to get to know Gutsaunsdorf Monastery personally, we recommend you to come and visit us from 4th to 6th June. That weekend there will be an event on the fourth way entitled In Search of the Miraculous, as the title of the famous book of Ospensky. And that weekend Robin Bloor the director of the Gurdjieff Society in Austin will introduce us to Gurdjieff's teachings. All information about this event also again on our website. Well, um, now it only remains for me to thank you once again, to say goodbye, and we look forward to seeing you soon again here and we would be happy if you bring your friends with you. Bye-bye. <laughs> you have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a recording of a live video stream with Om C. Parkin kicking off his new online series, Meeting with Teachers, Navigating the Wisdom Path. In this first installment, the mystical positivist hosts conversed with Ohm about his book, The Birth of the Lion, as well as many profound aspects of his teachings on inner stillness. Ohm C. Parkin is a renowned European wisdom teacher and the founder of the mystery school Nielions in Gut Saunstorf, a modern monastery. 
His books include Intelligence of Awakening, Navigating the Wisdom Path, The Birth of the Lion, and The Digital Age, A Critical View from a Western Perspective. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.